following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. As it's already been mentioned several times, um, for the next couple of months we are taking a break from our study in the Gospel of Luke to do this brief series of what we're titling Saved, What Happens When You Believe. And as you can see, the graphic for this series depicts people on a journey. And I chose this image to represent the series because, as we're going to see, being saved isn't just a momentary act, but a long journey. And that journey, as we're going to discover, begins much earlier than we realized. And it's going to continue for eternity. I think many of us can remember a time when we bowed in prayer to give our lives to Jesus. And for some of us, that moment may have been very emotional. You may even describe it as miraculous. Maybe there were some really crazy circumstances that surrounded your conversion to Christianity. Maybe God revealed himself in some really powerful ways in your life when you came to believe. For others, your salvation story may be really low-key. Maybe you even would describe it as uneventful. You just reached the moment in your life when you realized that you believed in the gospel message and you responded by giving your life to Jesus. But regardless of how dramatic or not dramatic that moment may have been, I think most of us would see our conversion as a moment of belief. I once believed that I once believed this, but now I believe this. I once didn't believe in Jesus, but now I believe he is my savior. And this change in belief is definitely a part of the salvation story. But as we're going to see, there is so much more to the story of being saved than just changing your belief system. Because the Bible tells us that when a person is saved, all kinds of things occurred in the unseen spiritual realms that we may not even fully realize if the Bible didn't tell us so. Historically, these events surrounding a person's salvation have been referred to as the order of salvation, or in the Latin, ordo salutis. Many of the individual elements uh, that make up this order of salvation, let's admit it, have some very intimidating names, right? Uh, Regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification. But hopefully as we go through this series for the next two months, we'll really be able to unpack what each of these loaded terms actually means and what the implications of these doctrines are for our own life, okay? Okay? Now, one more comment of introduction, and we'll jump into the meat of what we want to talk about today, which is the doctrine of election. Back in the 1980s, there was this band called Toto. I don't know, some of you might be old enough to remember them. They wrote this really popular song called Africa. In fact, I think it became one of the iconic songs of the 80s. And for the longest time, I used to make fun of this song as a high school student. Um, I guess actually I was in junior high then. I think it actually came out in 1982. Um, 
And I made fun of this song because I thought it had one of the dumbest lyrics I ever heard. And the chorus, I thought, went something like this. It's going to take a lot to drag me away from you. There's nothing that a hundred men on Mars could ever do. I bless the rains down in Africa. And I would point out to anyone who would listen to me how stupid I thought this lyric was. hundred men on Mars? What kind of dumb expression is that? hundred Martians keeping me away from you? But the truth was, I was the dumb one. Because that's actually not the lyrics of the song. The actual lyrics of the song says, There's nothing that a hundred men or more could ever do. I bless the rains down in Africa. You see, in my defense, we didn't have the internet back then. And you couldn't just go Google Toto Africa and instantly get the lyrics to your songs. In fact, back in the 80s, it was not an uncommon thing to debate with your friends exactly what the singers were saying in the songs that you were in love with in those days. But regardless, I have to own up to the fact that in my ignorance, I became pretty arrogant, okay? And I share this silly little story with you because there are going to be a lot of mysteries that we're going to explore in the coming days. And I'm going to argue that some of the stuff you're going to hear from my lips in this series are not always going to make immediate sense to you. They're almost going to seem illogical at times. And in those moments, it's going to be very tempting to dismiss those truths, thinking that we know better than God. But before we're so quick to pronounce judgment on God, I think what we first need is a spirit of humility, the acknowledgement that maybe we are the ones that are limited in our understanding. We are the ones that actually don't see very clearly the real truth. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, the Apostle Paul describes the limitations of our understanding of spiritual realities in this lifetime as, quote, seeing in a mirror dimly. It's like trying to make sense of blurry images that we see through a dark and foggy window or mirror. I think that's the humility that all of us need to have. This is especially true as we tackle this doctrine of election, which has caused so many debates throughout the history of the church. The doctrine of election deals with this singular question, when I became saved, did I choose God or did God choose me? Did I choose God or did God choose me? What the doctrine of election argues very clearly is that it is actually God who chose us, not the other way around. Theologian Wayne Grudem defines election like this. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Now, as you can see from this definition, this doctrine of election plunges us headlong into one of the greatest mysteries and debates of the Christian faith, which is the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. 
When we talk about God's sovereignty, we mean the fact that God controls everything in the universe and that nothing can happen unless He wills it. We often use the language of finding God when we talk about our testimonies with others. We may have attended church services or talked with friends or read books all in our, quote, search for God. Maybe finally, after much searching, we feel that we finally found God and decided to follow Him. But what the Bible tells us is that it is actually God who found us. From our perspective, it may have actually felt like God was the one hiding from us, and we were the ones that went out looking. But the Bible again says, no, it is actually God who has been searching for us while we were the ones who were running away. He is the one that orchestrated everything behind the scenes to bring us to himself. And the biblical evidence for this doctrine of election is pretty overwhelming. It's not found in just a few obscure verses in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 to 6. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Paul clearly states that it is God who chose us to be saved. And that he did this even before the world was created. He made that decision. And he did this also, Paul tells us, so that the greatness of his grace could be on display for the world to see. A few verses later, in Ephesians 1, 11 to 12, Paul goes on, in him we were, again here it says, also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. In other words, what Paul is saying is that choosing us was a part of God's plan. God has this master plan. And in that plan was choosing you. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, it says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Jesus calls the Christian brothers and sisters that he has the elect. In other words, those that God had chosen by election to be called sons and daughters of God. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. In other words, the Apostle Paul preaches in the city of of Pisidian Antioch, and as that gospel message is going forth, he says the people who were appointed to believe responded positively and accepted Christ when that gospel message went out. Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 to 9, it says, But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. You see, 
there is a temptation to think that election works like this. God, knowing everything, looked to the future, and he saw who the good people would be. He saw who was worthy of being saved by the kind of life that they lived. And so knowing that, what we call foreknowledge, he chose those people. But what the Bible tells us over and over again is that's not how election works. It's not that God looks and picks out who the good people in the world are and says, I want to save you because you are worthy of it. He says it had nothing to do with any particular goodness in you that merited your election. It was always about His grace and His mercy being extended to you. In Romans 8, 28 to 30, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. This passage is often referred to as the golden chain of salvation. Although it's not comprehensive, it's the closest that any singular verse in the Bible comes to to laying out the entire order of salvation, of all the different elements that come together of how God saves a person. It says that God foreknew him. Then he predestined that person. And then out of that predestination, he called them and then justified them and then finally glorified them. In other words, the picture is of God initiating the relationship. God is the one initiating the relationship. And then out of that choosing of us, he follows through in his commitment to us all the way until he brings us to be with him in heaven, this idea of glorification. Now, this is only a small sample of the verses in the Bible that argue for the doctrine of election. At the same time, though, I think we have to acknowledge that there are passages in the Bible that seem to speak a little bit of a different message, which is that it is God's desire that everybody be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 to 4. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And then look at what it says. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In 2 Peter chapter 3, 9, we see a similar sent- sentiment being described. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. You see, God makes it clear. Uh, look at even Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? In other words, the message is God does not get some twisted pleasure out of condemning people to hell. In fact, it says, his heart is that everyone would be saved. That all should find eternal life. Now, it doesn't take too much effort to realize that this doctrine of election raises 
some very honest and difficult questions. Why does God choose some people and not others then? If God doesn't want anyone to perish, then why doesn't he just save everyone? I mean, is, is there somebody thwarting this plan? Is there somebody more powerful than God that's hindering him from being able to accomplish this? If God chooses those who are saved, what's the point of evangelism? seems to sort of take any motivation out of sharing your faith with other people. If we're not chosen on the basis of our goodness, then what's the motivation to live a righteous life, right? If God doesn't use our goodness as a criterion to judge us, well then, what's the point of trying to be good? Now, I'm not going to be able to answer all of these questions over the course of this sermon, but hopefully some of these issues will be clarified as I unpack this doctrine of election going on in this sermon. First, I want to start here. To understand the doctrine of election, we must understand our condition without God. You see, what I'm saying is, is this. There are different ways that a person can be lost. You know, you can be accidentally lost. Maybe you made a wrong turn in the woods somewhere and you lost your bearings. Now you have no idea where you are on the trail. That kind of lostness is not that hard to fix. All you need is someone to point you in the right direction or a good map that will show you how to find your way back to where you want to go. It's not a difficult problem to solve. But I want to say this. You can also not just be accidentally lost, but you can be intentionally lost. This is the lostness of a runaway. You are lost because you want to be lost. This lostness is a much bigger problem because you have no desire to be found. You're lost and you want to keep it that way. And what the Bible tells us is that because of our sin, all of us start from this place of this second category of lostness. It's the lostness of the runaway. It's the lostness of a person intentionally running away from God who doesn't want to be rescued, who doesn't believe they need to be rescued. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12 says, It is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that the devastating effect of our sin is not only that it has separated us from our God, but it has made us hostile toward Him. We have become God's enemies. We mock Him. We deny Him. We reject Him. And we're very happy in that state of affairs. We want nothing to do with him. Not only that, but the Bible tells us we are spiritually blinded so that we cannot even recognize the truth when it's right in front of our face. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image 
of God. In fact, the Bible will even go further to say the best way to describe your state before God found you is not even of lostness but of spiritual death. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, is we all started in the same boat at one time. All of us were not just lost, but we were spiritually dead. We turned our backs on God and we lived for our own desires and we had no sense of guilt or shame living that way. You see, in light of that understanding of the condition we were in, it's not hard to understand why it is that God had to choose us rather than the other way around. Because the message is left to our own devices, none of us would choose God. That's the problem. God has to initiate the relationship because we are not going to initiate it on our own. We want nothing to do with God. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. You see, he's saying, you don't have enough goodness in you to come to God on your own. Unless it is God who calls you, Jesus says, you cannot, by your own willpower or goodness, come to me. John 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Jesus is telling his disciples, I know you think that you listened to my preaching and you made a calculation and you think you were the one that decided to follow me. But Jesus says, you know, the truth is, I actually am the one that chose you to be my disciple. There's this very interesting interchange between Jesus and the disciples recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 17, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Referring to himself. You know, who do they say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. You see, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? And by the disciples' response, it's clear that there is mass chaos and confusion in Israel. Nobody knows who Jesus is. They're making all kinds of wild guesses, and yet Peter says, you are the Son of God. He is the only one with the right answer. And it's interesting. In reply to that, Jesus says, Peter, you got it right. You got the right answer. You know who I am. But it's not because you're smarter than the rest or better than the rest. You got the right answer because it was revealed to you by my Father. You see, unless God showed you that, unless God did that work first in your life, you could not make that confession about who I am. God must make the first step toward us before we 
can take even the simplest step toward God. Now, I also want to say this, is that I think many people struggle with this doctrine of election because if you really follow it, it seems like it removes any sense of human freedom to choose, any liberty to choose freely. Um, It makes us sort of feel like we're all like robots marching in lockstep, going through the motions, following a script that was predetermined by God. I want to argue, though, that this concept of freedom is really a tricky one. This notion of having free will to choose whatever it is that we think we can or cannot do. Um, The truth is that on our own, separated from God, none of us are actually truly free like we think we are. Because what the Bible says is, without God, you are actually a slave to sin. You are under the bondage and control of sin that actually eliminated your freedom to choose and decide well before you even have to introduce God into the picture. The freedom of a person living without God is like the freedom of a fish trying to escape out of its fishbowl. You see, a fish may feel like it's imprisoned in this little bowl that it's confined to. It sees this amazing world outside that bowl of people walking and interacting and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Longing for freedom, it jumps out of the bowl onto the table. I don't think any of us looks at this fish flapping on the table with envy or joy. Oh, Goldie, you're the luckiest luckiest fish of them all. You're not like the other fish in that bowl. You are free. Go. Freedom. That's not the picture of a fish out of water, is it? The message is that fish is dead. It's dead. And I think we have to start wrestling with this concept of freedom under these terms. Is under the bondage of sin, are you really free to choose? Do you really have freedom to do whatever it is that you think will bring you happiness in life? Another way that we can think about freedom and the effect of sin on it is to picture a bird with a broken wing. Technically, that bird is free to fly. But the point is, with a broken wing, it is not capable of flight. And that's what the Bible says is the condition of our hearts without God. Lorraine Bettner says this, the, nat- the natural man is free to come to God, but not able. How can he repent of his sin when he loves it? How can he come to God when he hates God? This is the inability of the will under which man labors. In other words, there is this illusion of freedom to say, I can do whatever I want to do. And God would say, oh, really? Then don't sin. And the message would be, you can't stop sinning. Can you? Why? Because the impulses and the desires that ravage your heart hold you in that same bondage and control you? Do you really think that without God, you are free? Now, there's, I want to say this. 
there are just so many directions we can go with this message on election. And I don't want to weight this entire message into the direction of a philosophical debate about God's sovereignty versus human responsibility. When we look at the passages in Scripture that talk about election, what we discover is that one of the main reasons it talks about our election is to give us a sense of security because it is God who started the relationship with us. And so one of the messages of election is this. God chose you. You didn't choose him. And in that ought to be a tremendous amount of comfort, especially when we feel we have failed. I shared the story when I preached the book of Ephesians and talked a bit about predestination then, and I just wanted to share it again with you because I think it illustrates well what the Bible is trying to say to us about the doctrine of election. Uh, as many of you know, we have five kids, three daughters, and two sons. That's the ICC quota, and some of you are on your way to reaching it. Um, our youngest child, Judah, was born in Africa while we were missionaries there in Kenya. And uh, when he was five years old, we signed him up for karate. Uh, as patriotic Koreans, we wanted him to do taekwondo, but it was too expensive at taekwondo, so we signed him up for the uh, karate lessons they were teaching at the uh, park district. So he was in about several months into karate, and uh, the instructor, uh, the sensei, told us that there was a tournament coming up, and he thought it'd be a good idea if our kids signed up for the tournament because it'd be a great experience for them. So Betty and I, not knowing any better, said, yeah, sure, why not? We thought it'd be a great experience for him to be able to compete with other kids from other studios and maybe even to get a few rewards. We thought it'd be like soccer. Everyone gets a medal, you know, and everyone, it's like, you're all winners. Everyone's a winner here. Um, so we signed up for this tournament, and we went, and we very quickly realized what a mistake it was. I don't know if you can see Judah here. He's, he's right there, okay? <laughs> he's the kid that looks bewildered and scared and confused. Um, just about all the other kids were older and bigger than him. And we quickly realized that they were also far more skilled than him. Uh, and Judah knew it too right away. We also didn't know it, but this was not a normal tournament we signed him up for. It was actually the state championship that we signed him up for. <laughs> the instructor didn't tell us this. And the competition was brutal. It was brutal. They took every kid based on their belt, and they paired them up two by two. And these children had to basically compete with one another, doing all kinds of tasks. And the judges were all sitting in these rows of chairs, and they looked so cold and hard, not a smile cracking on any of their faces. And what it is is these two little kids compete side by side, and then at the end of the competition, uh, at the end of that round, there are three judges, and each kid is assigned a color. You're either blue or red, and you, they raise the color flag of the kid that they thought won, and it looks something like this. You know, red wins, you know, like that. Um, and you know, Judah's a spunky kid. He's a fighter. And so despite his fears and his nervousness, uh, he tried. He tried really hard. 
but it wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. And he lost everything. And uh, this is the picture that I took that this is the, of all the pictures of that day, this is the one that breaks my heart the most because it's the one in the, that was captured at the moment that he realized he lost, you know? And uh, this is right at the instant that he was declared the loser. And here he is standing with all the other kids who are like a head taller than him. I uh, notice he's one of the only kids without a medal around his neck. And as a father sitting on the sidelines watching this unfold, you don't know how heartbreaking it was. Uh, everything in me just wanted to run up there and hug him and say, you're number one to me, Judah. Like, you're a winner in my book. Don't worry. Like, so many times look, he was on the verge of tears, ready to burst out, but he was just too embarrassed to cry in that moment. And I want to ask you, have you ever felt like this? Have you ever felt like this? Have you ever wondered if you measure up or if you even belong? Because the doctrine of election is for people who feel like this. It's this message that you didn't choose God. God chose you. He is the one that initiated the relationship, so he is not going to give up on you. Because he didn't even choose you out of something inherently good in you that he saw. In other words, he says, there's nothing here to prove to me. I didn't pick you because you were such a good person. I picked you so that I could demonstrate my grace in your life. So the message of God's election to his saints is this. Even in your lowest moments, even when you feel like an utter failure, God is committed to you. Because God is the one that initiated the relationship. He is the one that chose you. You didn't choose him. And out of that choosing, he's committed to you to the very end even in your worst days, even in your greatest failures, God says, I am going to complete the work that I began in you, and I'm not going to give up on you until I'm done with that work. The doctrine of election does not negate our need to share our faith either because we don't know who the elect are. In fact, our witness to the world as Christians is a part of God's plan of saving others. Even in light of the doctrine of election, we see these genuine invitations for everyone to put their trust in God. Isaiah 55 verse 1, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, I fully acknowledge that there is a mystery here that I cannot fully resolve in this idea of election, and yet God still making a genuine, sincere invitation to all people who are hungry for this eternal life, hungry for this relationship with God, to come to him and receive this eternal life. That's his invitation to every one of us. If you feel that you're at the end of your rope, if you feel that you cannot save yourself 
or fix your life. Come to me, and I will give you what you're seeking. Let's pray. This doctrine of election is not easy to understand. And it probably raises more questions than it actually answers. And so even as I wrap up this message, I just want to invite you to return to the comments that I made at the introduction of this message. That there are things that are too wonderful for us to fully understand. Like my arrogance of thinking that I knew the lyrics to that Toto song, a hundred men in Mars could ever do. I think sometimes in our ignorance, we act very arrogantly to think that we know better than God. And I, I still, to this day as a pastor, cannot figure all this out, how there could be this sense of election and calling and that God chooses. But when I understand the story of sin, I at least understand part of the answer to say that the reason why God has to choose us is because without Him, none of us would choose Him. All of us are like runaways, headed in actually in the exact opposite direction, away from God. And so it's God who has to take the first steps toward us. It's God who has to make the initiative and reach out to us. Another thing that we see here in this teaching of election is that because it is God who initiates the relationship, the strong message throughout the Bible is that He's committed to us to the very end. No matter how we fail, no matter how much we backslide, no matter what we do, God says, I'm the one that started this journey with you. I'm the one that reached out to you and called you. And I'm going to pursue you to the very end. By my grace, by my power, I will see you through this journey and see you in heaven. And so I think this ought to be a message of great comfort to all of us. God, a lot of times I, I feel like I've blown it. I feel like I've blown it so badly, in fact, that I don't even feel like I deserve a second chance. And yet, if your word is true, I cling to these words to say that you are not giving up on me. You have a plan for my life. That you, in your mercy, chose me before the foundations of this world were laid. And out of that plan, you're going to keep going and moving in my life. I want to say that maybe some of you find yourself uh, not having that faith yet in your heart. And maybe your head is swimming from all the philosophical implications of what this doctrine of election suggests. But I think, honestly, sometimes there's just a a place of humility where we have to say, I'm never going to solve this riddle of election to my satisfaction, but I'm going to accept the invitation that is extended to me that in my lost state, God has found an answer for me through His Son, Jesus Christ, who took the penalty of my sin on Himself and died the death that I should have died so that I could have eternal life. And if I only give myself in trust to Him, 
that I also could know that life. I don't know how to resolve this mystery, that there is this genuine invitation given to all people, and yet some are chosen. But all I can say is where we stand on our side of the issue, what God says is, listen, if you hear that invitation, if you hear that call, respond with obedience, respond with brokenness and surrender, and give your life to me. And that's what I would invite you to do this day if you sense God tugging on your heart in that way. Could I just invite you to pray for a few minutes in light of this doctrine of election? And in just a moment, our worship team is going to lead us in a time of response. Let's pray.